Our scripture this morning is 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Well, good morning, everyone. Yeah, this is crazy. Ooh, this is really crazy. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for watching. I hope that you're well. Uh, I'm well. I'll go ahead and uh, address the elephant in the room. Yes, Kelsey and I were recently in Germany. And yes, Germany is apparently full of coronavirus. Uh, but we made it back safely. We like well past our 14-day quarantine, only to be quarantined yet again by the city of McKinney. And so we've been doing this whole shelter-in-place thing since uh, we got back from Germany. But Uh, We made it home safe, and that's a really good thing because there was a while there that we suspected that we might not actually be able to come home from Germany. We thought we were going to be stuck in Germany, and that's all because there was a statement released by the White House about a European travel ban. I'm not sure if you even remember this. It was several weeks ago, but basically the White House said that all travel from Europe to the U.S. was going to be suspended for a month in order to contain the spread of COVID-19. Because coronavirus is like going crazy in Germany. But we, we weren't paying attention to that. We didn't know that. We're like out in the country in Germany. We're out like hiking in the woods. We're not keeping up with White House briefings. We're just like hiking, climbing mountains, touring castles, and not washing our hands. And so we're having a ball. And this travel ban was actually announced at 3 a.m. our time. And so Kelsey and I were asleep. That is, until my phone started just incessantly buzzing like every 15 seconds just so finally I wake up I'm like what is going on and I have 70 texts okay now I don't know how popular you think I am but I'm not 70 texts popular okay and so I like grab my phone I go into the different room so I'm not waking Kelsey up and I start reading these articles and everybody's reading these uh, texts and everybody's telling me guys y'all need to get home quick and they're, they're sending me articles from the New York Times, Fox News, CNN, Washington Post, all these different news outlets. And here's what they're saying. The White House released a statement, and it sounds like if you're in Germany right now, you're not going to be able to get home unless you leave in the next two and a half days. Okay? And that's the general consensus. And so I'm like in disbelief. I'm like, are they seriously going to make us stay in Germany if we don't book a a flight home in the next two and a half days? Like, are they really going to keep us from our kids? By the way, Kelsey and I went on this trip without our kids, left our kids with Kelsey's parents. So shout out to Tom and Dana being prepared to have our children for an extra month, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. But I'm thinking, are they really going to keep us away from our kids? Are they really going to keep us away from our jobs. Like, this is crazy. I mean, is this really what this means? Is there not some sort of exceptions? So I'm like, okay, I'll go on some U.S. government websites, and they'll probably have the statement with a little more detail, a little more, some more exceptions to sort of this broad travel ban statement. U.S. Embassy in Munich, 
Department of State. I went to the TSA website. You know, they helped me get in the country. But nobody had, had anything. Nobody had anything different than the White House statement. And so that's all I had. The statement that says I can't come home from Germany to U.S. unless I leave in the next two and a half days. I have 70 texts from friends. I have news outlets, all the major news outlets saying, you got to get out of Germany, dude. And so I, I, I just start looking up tickets. I'm like, I guess I got to find a plane home. How much do you think the cheapest flight home from Germany to the U.S. was after that announcement was made? $3,000 for a one-way ticket, for one one-way ticket. And so minimum, Kelsey and I are paying $6,000 just to get back home. And so I'm like, I guess we live in Germany now. I guess we need to just go move in. That house looks abandoned. Let's just go move in there. That's going to be our new home. But then finally, the Department of Homeland Security, you know, the people who are responsible for securing our homeland, the Department of Homeland Security posted a clarifying statement, and it read, this travel ban suspends the entry of most foreign nationals who have been in certain European countries in the past 14 days. I'm like, okay, blah, blah, blah. And it does not apply to U.S. citizens. <sighs> Great. It doesn't apply to U.S. citizens. This travel ban does not apply to U.S. citizens. And that's all I needed to hear. I didn't need to go search more websites. I didn't need to text anybody else because the Department of Homeland Security, the people who are responsible for deciding who does and who does not get to come into the country just said, yeah, this travel ban exists, but it doesn't apply to you, Tim, because you're a citizen. It doesn't apply to U.S. citizens. And so we just dropped all of our worries instantly. All of these text messages and news articles, just their urgency kind of vanished and we enjoyed the rest of our trip. And it was a blast. We had a lot of fun. And then we started washing our hands a little bit more. But here's why I tell you that. There was this statement released by the White House, and everybody was looking for some sort of clarification. News outlets were reporting one thing. Other news outlets were reporting something else. And people just wanted someone in authority to just come in and clarify what the statement actually meant. And likewise, John is writing to a church who's struggling to understand who this Jesus is is. Because John and the apostles, they've all come in and they've said, he's the son of God. But yet they've had these false teachers also come in and they're these antichrists coming in and sharing a different testimony. And so they're looking for something definitive. They're looking for something authoritative. The church is saying, what, who is this Jesus? What does this all mean? And so John's going to share the testimony of the highest authority, God himself. He's going to clarify what God himself has said regarding Jesus. Because what God has to say, it trumps anything anyone else has to say. You know, as soon as God says something about this is who Jesus is, well, who else do you ask? He's the highest authority. He's the one that makes the definitive call. And so John's going to walk us through this testimony. And then he's going to explain what this means for us as followers of Jesus. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So let's just pray together and then we will get into our text. God, I thank you that you are good. I thank you, uh, Lord, for your word. I thank you for how your word teaches us, sanctifies us, 
uh, anchors us to the true and right testimony concerning your son. I pray now as, as I preach, Lord, that that would be what I preach, the true testimony. Uh, Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, we cannot uh, understand your word rightly. And so I pray that you would help us. Lord, I thank you for your spirit. Gives us wisdom. And that we, by your spirit, we understand and know truth. And so we thank you. You've given us everything we need. So we praise you this morning. Be with us now as we read your word and study it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's start with verse 9. 1 John chapter 5. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. So when he says the testimony of men, he's just meaning stuff people tell you, okay? He's assuming that we accept stuff people tell us all the time. We take people at their word all the time. So for example, we have said several times, we mean the staff at Parkway, we've said several times from the stage that Carl Brower, our family minister, plays the French horn. And we make a lot of jokes, pretty much any chance we get, theological equipping, sermons, membership meetings, uh, or member meetings, membership class, any chance we get, we make a joke about how Carl used to play the French horn for a living. Now, why do we make fun of Carl so much? Why do we have so many jokes? First off, it's how we show our affection. It just shows that we, we love Carl. But also, it's because the French horn is a lame instrument. It's a terrible instrument. First off, it's not even French. And second, it sounds like the distress call of a beluga whale, but slightly out of tune. Okay, so we talk about all the time, Carl plays the French horn. But let me ask you this. Have you ever heard Carl play a French horn? Just a show of hands. Wherever you are, on your couch, in your weird doomsday bunker, just raise your hand high if you've ever seen or heard Carl play a French horn. My guess is that very few of you are raising your hands. My guess is that most of you have never even seen Carl in the same room as a French horn, much less heard him play one. And yet, you believe that he can play the French horn. We could have made it up. We needed some more joke material for our sermons and theological equipping classes. So we said, Carl, you play the French horn, you're into Dungeons and Dragons, and you do Star Wars stuff. And we just started making up all these jokes, but none of them are actually true. But no, you've, you've just accepted our testimony. Maybe you want any more, but so far you just accepted it because we said it. The point is that we accept the testimony of men all the time. And John knows this. And so he says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Now this is called an a fortiori argument. Okay, we've talked about these before. A fortiori arguments. It's an argument from the larger to the smaller. From the more difficult to the easier. So for an example, if I can lift 200 pounds, I can lift 100 pounds by default. You see how that works? If I can grow a beard, I can grow a goatee. See? Because if I could do the biggest thing, I could do the smallest thing. If I could dodge a wrench, I can dodge a ball. These are all a fortiori arguments. And what, that's what, what John's saying here. If we can accept the testimony of men, men who lie, men who deceive and sometimes get things wrong and have poor memories, 
If we can accept their testimony, then we should definitely be able to accept the testimony of God all the more because God doesn't lie. He doesn't deceive. He doesn't have a poor memory. God's actually the very standard of truth. And so his testimony is infinitely greater than men. So John says, if we receive the testimony of men, seeing that we readily accept what men say, the testimony of God is greater. So then we ought to all the more readily accept what God says because he is greater. Now on to 9b. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. This testimony of God, which is greater than the testimony of men, has to do with something God has born concerning his son. Before we go any further, I just have to be honest. It's kind of a weird way of saying something. That's a weird way of writing this sentence in English. Like if I came up to you and I, and I said, did you hear the testimony of the Channel 8 News that they have born concerning the coronavirus? You would be rightly confused. And I wouldn't blame you. That's a weird way to say that. The word born is actually just referring to bearing witness. Okay? That's all that born with an E on the end is referring to. Bearing witness. To have borne witness. To have borne a testimony. And so John's basically saying, this is what God has borne witness of. This is what God has testified concerning his son. Which is what? What is the testimony God has borne concerning his son? He said, this is the testimony. It's kind of like he's pointing to it. He says, this here, this is the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. But what is he referring to? What's he, what's he pointing to? Well, this morning, we actually just hopped into the middle of John's unfolding this explanation of the testimony. We're kind of like those people that just like plop in the middle of the couch while you're like watching a movie. And they're like, who's that guy? What's he doing? Oh, why does he have a knife? Why are they fighting? You're just like, just... Just watch the movie. And that's what we're doing. We're just hopping right in the middle of John's argument. He's unfolding this testimony. So we need to back up a couple of verses to get a better understanding of what he's actually talking about. And we find that in 1 John 5, verse 5. Chapter 5, verse 5. Just a couple of verses earlier. John says, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That Jesus is the Son of God. The testimony of God begins with this declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. This man who was born in Bethlehem, who performed many signs and miracles, who was uh, crucified, who died, was buried, and then he rose again. This Jesus, he is the Son of God. Now, I don't know if you realize how profound a statement that is, to say that Jesus is the Son of God. We're pretty Christian-y people. Like we've, we, we're pretty used to calling Jesus all these different names like Messiah and Christ and, and Son of God. When I read that, none of us even blink that Jesus is the Son of God. But for John to call Jesus the Son of God, though it sounds pretty mundane to us, for his audience, it is absolutely scandalous. It's controversial. Because to call Jesus the Son of God is to call Jesus God. Let me say that again. To call Jesus the Son of God is to call Jesus God. Now, you're thinking, how so? That doesn't make any sense. Like, if I say Haddon is my son, I'm certainly not saying that he's me, you know. 
He's very, he's very cute. He's very short. He's got big cheeks like I do under this beard. But I'm not saying that Haddon is me, and none of you would think that either when I say this is the son of Tim. So how does John calling Jesus the son of God mean that Jesus is God? Well, there's a few reasons, three to be exact. I'll try to cover these pretty briefly. So get ready. <laughs> First, calling someone the son of someone is a figure of speech, which is used throughout the Bible. Okay, we see it a lot throughout the Bible. And it's used to illustrate a person's nature or general characteristics about that person. So for example, if you're short, you might be called the son of Zacchaeus. Because Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, right? Jesus refers to James and John. John, the author of our epistle, he calls them the sons of thunder which seems to mean that they were like hotheads or maybe they were overzealous or they just made a lot of noise. He calls them sons of thunder, but we never really know why he calls them that, which is kind of funny. In Ephesians 2, Paul calls unbelievers sons of disobedience. Now, Paul's not saying that there's some guy out there with an unfortunate name, disobedience, and he's got a lot of sons. No, rather, he's just saying in a roundabout way that they're disobedient. They're like their father. They come from the family of disobedience. They're just like their old man, disobedience. Or there's this moment in the Gospel of John where Jesus tells the Pharisees that they're sons of the devil, that their father is the devil, which is a pretty sick burn, okay, coming from Jesus, a pretty sick burn indeed. He's not trying to say that one day the devil met a nice girl and they settled down, had a couple of Pharisees. You know, he's not, he's not saying that the devil's a dad. The devil doesn't wear new balances with jeans. No, rather, he's just saying that they're acting like the devil. He's saying that as they oppose him, they're functioning in the role of the devil. They're doing the work of the devil. And so part of what's going on when Jesus is called the son of God is John's illustrating something about the nature of Jesus. This is important. Though in the case of the Pharisees, Jesus is saying that they are like the devil, what John is saying is not that Jesus is like God. John's actually trying to communicate that Jesus is God. Which brings us to the second thing this title conveys, is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. So by the time of John's writing, there's this understanding given throughout the Old Testament that there was going to be this person who would come from the family of David who would offer himself as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of God's people. And this person has a ton of names, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, the righteous branch of David. There's all these names given to this person, but he would take upon himself the sins and the transgressions of all the people and God would actually accept this as a worthy sacrifice. As this man laid down his life, God would say, yep, that works, and would forgive all of God's people. And then this man would be called God with us. That would be his name, God with us. And his throne or his kingdom would be established and would be eternal. It would be everlasting. It would never come to an end. And so all the stuff that's written about the Messiah, it seems to point to somebody incredibly unique. Someone who's a man and yet somehow is God with us. Which then brings us finally to a third thing that calling Jesus the son of God conveys is that he is the second person of the Trinity. God eternally exists as one God, 
three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And to call Jesus the Son of God is to affirm that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's fully God. He's the same substance as the Father, eternally existing, equal with the Spirit and the Father. And yet John went fishing with him. He's, he's fully man. So as John writes in his gospel, the word who was with God from the beginning, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When you consider all of this, it's no wonder that calling someone the son of God would be extremely scandalous, would be extremely controversial. Because to call anyone the son of God other than the son of God is to call an ordinary man God, which is terrible and blasphemous. This is actually the charge that the religious leaders in John's day gave in order to kill Jesus. They said that he was committing blasphemy. John 5, 16 through 18. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was, and this is my paraphrase, he was healing a guy on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Listen to this. Making himself equal with God. And it's for this claim that Jesus was crucified. John 19, 6 through 7. When the chief priests and the officers saw Jesus, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. So even the religious leaders recognize that to be called the son of God is to be called divine. It's blasphemy to be called the son of God because the son is equal to God. So having said all of that, this testimony that John is unfolding for us this morning begins with the belief that Jesus is the Son of God, which means that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and that he died for our sins, being the only one worthy and able to do such a thing. It's like we just sang. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford. Only Jesus can afford that debt. And only Jesus could apply his payment to sinners like you and me. So John says, for this is the definitive testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. That was a lot, okay? But stay with me. <laughs> I promise these next few verses won't take as long now that we've defined all of our terms. So let's go to verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So let's start with 10a. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Now what does it mean to believe in the Son of God? I heard a lady say recently, I don't believe in national borders. I was like, uh, well, I can assure you they exist. But that's not what she meant. What she meant was, I don't think national borders are necessary, which is a different topic for a different day. But, but John's not talking about people who believe the sun exists. Of course, everyone believes the national borders exist. And sure, you can believe that the Son of God exists. 
But he's not talking about that. He's talking about those who believe that the Son of God is necessary for their salvation. That Jesus is the only one who can pay for their debt of sin. So he says, whoever believes in the Son of God, who believes that this Son of God is necessary for salvation, has the testimony in himself. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to have the testimony in yourself? Now I have to tell you about this weird dream that I have, okay? (laughs) And it was one of those times uh, where you have a dream, but you don't remember it until like days later, okay? So I had this dream last week, no joke, where I was preaching this text. And except we're in a different room, none of that matters. I argued that this is what John was meaning here when he says the testimony is in himself, in the person who believes in the Son of God. That in the early church, everyone would eat a fortune cookie, okay? And written on the fortune cookie would be the testimony, written inside the paper. They would eat the whole fortune cookie, paper and all, swallow it whole, and inside the fortune cookie on the paper would be the testimony of God. So that everybody in the early church could say, the testimony's within me. It's in me. And that's how I know I'm a Christian. The testimony's within me. So there you go. That's probably what this means. With that being said, let's just go ahead and move on. I'm just kidding. Uh, Though that's not at all what John's saying. (laughs) They did not have fortune cookies back then. They don't even have those in China. Uh, It's actually kind of similar to what John's saying. Okay? What John's saying is whoever believes in Jesus has heard the testimony that Jesus is the son. And they've internalized that testimony. They've, they've heard it. They've accepted the message. And if you were to look inside their soul to see what's driving them, what's motivating them, you would find the message that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's true for us as well. When you're feeling condemned, you have this testimony within you that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins. That testimony It drives you. It combats your condemnation. When you encounter false teachers, you have this testimony within you that Jesus is the Son of God and there's no reconciliation to God but through him. When you wonder whether or not you should love your fellow believer who's going through a hard time, well, guess what? You have this testimony within you that Jesus is the Son of God who supplied your need when you had nothing to offer God, when you were in desperate need of life and hope and redemption. The Son of God supplied all that you needed. Therefore, supply what your brother needs. When you feel like you don't love God like a good Christian should, you have this testimony within you that Jesus is the Son of God and he loves God perfectly on your behalf. So you see, this testimony is like this this daily bread. We need it every hour. We need it in all seasons. And it brings us to the same place every time. Belief in the Son. Belief in the Son. That in Jesus, our faith is established. I think that's what he means by the testimony is in whoever believes in the Son. Now, also remember, John's writing this letter to a church where the apostles preach this testimony. But then, false teachers have come in and they've rejected the testimony of God. They've said things like, we don't need Jesus because we don't have any sin. We don't need atonement. We don't need Jesus' blood. We don't have any sin. Or they said that they found other ways to have fellowship with God apart from Jesus. And so now, John's kind of going to go on the attack. 
to leave no doubt to whether or not these teachers should be listened to or not. He says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So John comes out swinging. Whoever denies this testimony calls God a liar. And he's right, by the way. (laughs) Because how can a person who says they have fellowship with God, who everyone agrees doesn't lie, how can they say that what God has said about the Son is a lie? How can you have fellowship with God and then call him a liar? That just doesn't make sense. That's like going around and telling everybody that Zach Lee loves practicing social distancing. If you don't know Zach, he's an extrovert through and through. He's not, not hanging around with people for several months, I think would be Zach's worst nightmare, okay? Maybe flying in a plane without seeing people for several months, that'd probably be the ultimate Zach Lee nightmare. But imagine there are people going around saying that Zach loves social distancing. He loves all the shelter in place stuff that we've got going on. And so he's so happy to finally be locked into his house where he doesn't have to go talk to people, doesn't have to see people or spend any time with people because he, he hates that. And he loves especially how these shelter in place rules, they have these dates that they're going to end, but then those dates just keep getting moved back. So he never knows when things are going to get back to normal. That is Zach's favorite. He loves that. If you know Zach, then you, you know that that's an obvious lie. If you ask Zach, he'll be the first to tell you that that is absolutely untrue because he hates all these rules. He hates social distancing and Zach's type of person, if he didn't talk with another human being, I don't know what happens. Like the universe explodes. So then whoever would go around saying that Zach loves these rules, they're actually making Zach out to be a liar because Zach would tell you that he hates them. And furthermore, whoever would say Zach loves these rules, they themselves are liars because that couldn't be any further from the truth. John is saying that these false teachers that reject that Jesus is the son of God and our only hope of redemption are liars and they call God a liar because they deny the testimony of God and they deny what God has testified. Let's keep going to verse 11. He says, and this is the testimony. So here it is. This is the big moment, okay? The big reveal. It began with Jesus being the son of God, our only hope of salvation. And now John says, the testimony is that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Now, usually we spend a lot of time having to explain what John means because he speaks in all of these crazy, these flowery roundabout ways but this is pretty clear, okay? God gave us eternal life. Notice it's something that God gives. It's not something we've earned from him. God gave us eternal life and this life is given exclusively in his son. And I say exclusively because John says that right there. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Okay, so if you want the life, you gotta have the son. John says the same thing in his gospel. John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not 
obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So how can one have eternal life? Life which is unending, not only in quantity of years, but also quality of years. How can one have eternal life? Well, through belief in the Son. Apart from the Son, the wrath of God remains. The testimony of God is that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus is the only way. So whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The Son is where life is found and there's no alternative. While Kelsey and I were in Germany, we toured a bunch of like old historical places, which was great. And we toured this one castle and the king who designed the castle had all of these secret tunnels and passageways throughout the castle. And so you'd walk into a room and you'd think that the door you came into was the only way into the room. But no, there'd be this panel over here that would move or this painting over here would slide over to reveal a hidden door. So there were all these cool secret ways that you had no idea existed to get into the room. But there are no secret alternative passages to eternal life. That's what the false teachers of John's day are arguing. That they can have fellowship with God without the Son. And we see the same old story with new characters today. People will say that all faiths lead to God. I'd encourage you to listen to today's uh, theological equipping class. It addresses that topic specifically. But you either have the Son or you don't have the Son. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. You either believe the testimony God has borne concerning his son, or you deny it, and you call God a liar, demonstrating that you don't have fellowship with God. Never has John been more clear. And so we've covered a lot, and it's a pretty straightforward text. But in summary, here's, here's the point, I think, of 1 John 5, 9 through 12. God's testimony is that Jesus is the Son of God. And in him, and him alone, do we have forgiveness, fellowship with God, and life. Only those who believe in the Son have life. And to claim that there's any other way is to call God a liar and so prove that you do not have life. That's, that's basically it. It's that straightforward. This is, this is one of the most straightforward texts I've ever preached. <laughs> and so how do we apply a text like this? And again, I think John's encouragement is clear. Believe in the Son. Believe in the Son. Believe that he alone is your hope of salvation. And then reject the testimony of anyone who would say otherwise. Okay? And how can we reject false testimony if we don't know the true testimony? So I think one thing we have to walk away from this text realizing is that, yes, studying your Bible can be somewhat important. That studying theology can be somewhat important. That's something we're so passionate about here at Parkway because you cannot discern what is false if you don't even know what truth is. And so know the word, know the testimony of God so that you might believe it and believe in the son. And I, I spent, and I kid you not, 
hours trying to think of how best to tell you to believe in the Son. And I, and not joking, hours. Just, okay, here's this application. This is how I end my sermon. Nope, I scrap that. Here's what we're going to say. Nope. And I just, I couldn't really come up with something that I thought was, was really capturing the fullness of what John is trying to communicate. This whole text is really just John inviting us to believe in the Son rather than those who do not believe in the Son. Don't be like those who don't believe in the Son. Rather, believe in the Son. But I didn't just want to just stand up here and say, you know, believe in the Son. Just do it, please, you know. <laughs> so instead... I thought I'd read uh, a great passage. I read from Ephesians 2, uh, a passage that many of us have read many times. And my prayer would be that this testimony of God concerning his son would sink down deep into your soul, that you would internalize it. I know that for uh, many of us, this is a really crazy season. And it's crazier for some of us more than others. I know stress tends to squeeze us and then what comes out of us when we're, when we're squeezed, when we, when we have all this pressure, what comes out of us in these times isn't as polished as we tend to present ourselves, which is actually a good thing. Because what we really believe about God, what we really believe about his goodness, his provision, his love towards us, that tends to come out in times of hardship and trial. And so I say that not to condemn you, but to comfort you with the truth about God's affection for you. The purity of your faith or the strength of your faith is not what save you. And when we can polish ourselves up and everything's going dandy and we can make ourselves look like we've got this great, pure and strong faith, it's hard for us to believe in the sun. But in these times of difficulty, in these times of trial, when things get taken away from us and we start to get frustrated with God, the purity of our faith is shown for what it really is. And so instead of having to lean on our own faith, our own righteousness to save us, we get to rely on the strength of Christ's righteousness. And you can't take anything away from that. You can't, by your sin, diminish from Christ's perfect righteousness that's been accounted to you. So if you believe in the Son, you have all of the Son, even with weak belief. In fact, it's only the weak that need a savior. So thank God that you're weak. So I'm just going to read some scripture. And my prayer is that you would be renewed by the testimony of God. That you might even memorize the scripture. That this testimony would be in you. Just sink down. You would come to this testimony like daily bread to remind you that you have all you need in Christ. You don't need Christ plus. You have all you need in Christ. So I'm going to read this passage. We're going to pray, and that'll be our time. Our passage is Ephesians 2 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show us, this is eternity, in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. And I'll add, you can't take away from it. It's a perfect gift from God that you can do nothing to harm. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God, I thank you for your grace. Lord, we confess that we need you. We confess that we have weak faith. We confess that we're legalists. We're just these struggling, broken legalists who so often we think of our salvation with an asterisk. And and we're the ones responsible for fixing that asterisk. We think of ourselves as, yes, I believe in the Son, but I don't believe as much as I should. I believe in the Son, but, but I don't act like it. I pray, God, that you would encourage us this morning, that we would embrace the testimony of God concerning the Son. We need you. We confess that we need you to do this. We confess that we we need you for all good things. And we thank you that you give good things to your children. We thank you that you are a good and gracious and merciful God, that you sent your son to die a death he did not deserve, but he took the curse upon himself. And in him we're redeemed for every past sin, present sin, and future sin. Your grace is abundant. I pray, Lord, that that would sink down deep into our souls and that we would pour out in praise and love for one another and good works which you prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. We thank you. Thank you for this time just to study your word. Pray that you would be with us this week. Lord, we bless you, we thank you, and we glorify you. It's in Christ's name uh, that we even know you. It's in Christ's name that we can even pray. Uh, Amen.